Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 20th, 2022, and this is show number 876. Well, we've got a liver-than-usual live audience uh, for the show tonight. Uh, Barry Falk is actually in the house, along with Pat Dengler. So uh, we've got live show people there, and they're in the video on and off. So uh, we've been having a lot of fun with that. But we should probably kick into the show. This week's installment of Programming by Self has Bart Bouchotts back to take us down memory lane to 102 episodes ago when he first introduced us to the concept of test-driven development for our programming. He explains why back then he taught us how to use QUnit for our test-driven development work and why it's no longer in favor with him. It's not just the advancements in technology like ES6, but it's also because QUnit makes it terribly hard to write tests and more importantly to interpret what you've written when you've been away from them for for a while. He walks us through his criteria for picking a new test-driven development tool and why he chose Jest for the job. He then walks us through a worked example of how to write some simple tests on a module and, of course, explains how Jest does its job running our tests. I liked it, even though my head hurt a little bit during part of it. Anyway, you can, of course, find this in your podcatcher of choice at uh, by looking for Programming by Stealth or Chit Chat Across the Pond. I'm reasonably skilled at searching the web, especially using a little search trick I learned years ago. Let's say you want to find the diagram I made for all of the new Pro and Max 14-inch MacBook Pros. You know it's somewhere on podfeet.com, and you could navigate there first and then use my search box, but if you're already at your search engine of choice, there's a better way. Simply type your search term, followed by the word site colon and the URL of the site. In this example, where I'm going to look for the two words diagram and max on podfeet.com, I would type in diagram, max, site, colon, podfeet.com. This will give you a list of search results in your search engine site. In my example, the first result will be a link to my blog post containing the diagram to help you choose the right 14-inch MacBook Pro. If you'd rather do this, you can type site colon URL of site first and then follow it with the search term. So you could put the search term before or after site colon and the URL. This little trick will become important later in the story. I use this method to search sites all the time because it's often difficult to find the search box on the site I want to search. Why bother looking for that search box if I can get the result I want while at the comfort of my search engine's homepage? It's a great method that really allows me to narrow my searches down quickly to the relevant website. I search podfeet.com so often with this method that I created a text expander snippet for it. But on a recent Clockwise podcast, Dan Morin brought up a way to do this even more easily for sites you search often, using a free Safari extension that works on macOS, iPadOS, and iOS. This extension is called Keyword Search. I'll explain how to install and configure the extension in a moment, but first, let's talk about how it solves the same problem, but in a more efficient way. With the keyword search extension enabled, you can type a single letter or just a few letters to designate the site you want to search, followed by your search terms. Let's say you want to search Wikipedia for Warthog. With the keyword search extension, you can simply type into your search bar W space Warthog, and you'll immediately be directed to Wikipedia open to the Warthog page. You don't have to navigate to Wikipedia after searching, you're already there. I think that's kind of magical. When you install the keyword search extension, it, become, it comes preloaded with a bunch of common websites, like the Wikipedia example I just used. 
This is useful not just because it saves you some work, but by perusing the examples, you start to learn how the extension does its magic, and you'll learn how to make your own little keywords for the searches you do often. By inspecting the Wikipedia example, you'll see that you can have multiple options for the keyword. For example, you can trigger a search of Wikipedia with W or WI or SW. Think search Wikipedia, so SW works. The examples also demonstrate that you might have to do a little bit of sleuthing to create your own keyword searches for the websites you search often. There's two main advantages of the keyword search extension. Firstly, you type fewer characters. Secondly, you are immediately taken to the website you're searching instead of having to click again from your search engine to get to the website. Because we're using a Safari extension, any keyword search you create on any iOS or Mac device is automatically available on all of your other iCloud-connected devices. While typing out site colon wikipedia.com space warthog on the Mac isn't that bad, it's a game changer to only have to type w space warthog on a tiny iPhone keyboard. Now, hopefully, hopefully I've intrigued you enough with this concept that we can take a step back and walk through the installation and setup of the keyword search extension for Safari. Now, most people have installed extensions into browsers before, but since extensions on iOS Safari are brand new, I'm going to walk through it in case you haven't done it before. For completeness sake, let's explain it on macOS Safari first. On macOS, if you open Safari, in the menu bar, you select Safari and then Safari Extensions. This will open the Mac App Store, showing you all of the extensions available for Safari. Search for the Keyword Search extension, or better yet, go to the link in the show notes and that'll take you directly to Keyword Search in the Mac App Store. Once you've found Keyword Search in the Mac App Store and installed it, inside Safari you need to go into Safari Preferences and then to the Extensions tab to enable it. It's an easy step, but it's always confusing to me that if I go to the menu and I select Safari Extensions, I don't see my extensions. I'm back in the App Store. Okay, okay, enough whining about the App Store. All right, switching gears to iOS, again, search for Keyword Search in the App Store. Surprisingly, you can also use the same link I gave you to Keyword Search for the Mac, but if you access this link from your iPad, iPhone, or iPod Touch, you'll get the correct version of the iOS App Store. Once an extension is downloaded to your iOS device, you need to enable it there too. Open Settings, Safari, Extensions, and tap on Keyword Search and toggle it on. You'll notice in this same menu, there's a link to look at more extensions. This will take you into the App Store to discover more extensions like the awesome 1Password extension. It made me really happy when I toggled on Keyword Search in iOS extensions and I noticed that it explicitly says Keyword Search does not have permission to read, alter, or transmit content from any web pages. Gotta love that. All right, once you have Keyword Search installed and activated, on macOS you'll see a new icon in the toolbar that looks like a little magnifying glass. On iOS, there isn't enough room to have a proper toolbar, so they collapse all extensions into an icon of a puzzle piece. On the biggest iPhones and on iPad OS, you'll see the puzzle piece right in the URL field. But if your phone isn't huge, tap on the AA icon to find the puzzle piece where it's clearly labeled Manage Extensions. Tap on the puzzle piece to reveal all of your extensions, one of which will be Keyword Search. From here on out, Keyword Search is identical on macOS and all iOS and iPadOS devices. As I mentioned earlier, when you select Keyword Search in your list of extensions, you'll see it's pre-populated with some common websites to show you how easy it is to configure. For example, you'll see in the drop-down Amazon-SA. 
Let's break this example down to how it was created. If you tap on the chevron to the right of any of the examples, you'll see the fields you can fill out to create your own search keywords, or you can modify the ones they've created for you. Firstly, you give it a human-readable name. In this example, they called it Amazon. You can name it anything you want when you create the keyword search. You could call it pancakes, but you know maybe using the name of the site makes sense. The next field is for keywords. You'll see in the Amazon example that they've used SA to mean search Amazon. You can add additional keywords if you like. Perhaps AZ would be an easy to remember keyword for you. Simply separate the keywords with commas and you're in business. Now think about trading off how often you search a site against how many characters you want to search. I search podfeet.com all the darn day, so SP is a super short keyword for me to search my favorite site. Keyword search comes pre-populated with keyword searches for Amazon, archive.org, down for everyone or just me, DuckDuckGo, eBay, Google, oddly enough, Google Images, Google Maps, IMDb, Stack Overflow, Wikipedia, uh, Wolfram Alpha, and YouTube. Now, if you only ever use keyword search to search the sites that the developer has already set up for you, you can stop learning right now. But if you'd like to tailor the extension to search sites not already in the list, such as podfeed.com, then we have to do a little bit more work. The next section is entitled Expansion, and that's where things get really interesting. Expansions are URLs that include the website you want to search, plus what's called a query string after the URL. Now, you've probably seen query strings before, but you may not have known what they were called. If you've ever noticed a question mark followed by more text in a URL, that's a query string. The big trick here is that, or I should say the tricky bit here, is that websites don't all use the same pattern for searching with a query string. You need to do a bit of sleuthing, as I mentioned, to figure out what pattern they use. But it's not hard. It's just kind of weird. Start at the website you want to be able to search with the extension and use their search box to search for something. The URL that gets returned will show you the pattern you're going to need for keyword search. I think an example is in order. Let's say you're a big fan of the Starts With Small Steps podcast by Jill from the Northwoods. I mean, who doesn't love that podcast? Navigate to smallstepspod.com and use Jill's search box to search for anything you like. I'll search for weight loss. In the URL bar, after I do that search, it returns https colon slash slash smallstepspod.com slash question mark. There we go. Now we know we have the search query coming. And then it says equals weight plus loss. To create a new keyword search entry for smallstepspod.com, we can tap the add new button, enter the name smallstepspod, and choose a keyword or two. I chose SSP. For the expansion, I'll copy in the URL I got back from searching her site, but I'll stop before I put in weight plus loss. So now it's just going to say HTTPS colon slash slash smallstepspod.com slash question mark S equals. Now we have to do one more thing here, and that's to add a placeholder for the search term, which is at, 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 the at symbol three times. I know that sounds super clumsy, but when you see it written, it's not that bad. It's one of those things that takes way longer to try to describe clearly than it does to execute. Now, smallstepspod.com is a pretty sensible looking example. So don't get intimidating, intimidated if you see a really weird looking one. I mean, hers is literally question mark S equals. That's all it has on it. I mentioned that uh, we've pre-populated the extension with the search for eBay, and it is super weird. Instead of question mark S equals, like Jill's site, eBay search ends with question mark uh, backslash underscore NKW equals. 
I have no idea what that means, but it's just as easy to copy and paste from a test search as any other site. Now, I've added a few sites I search all the time, but to be honest, the sites they included are most of what I need. This week, I was trying to download an update to an application, but the website wasn't responding. I remembered that keyword search include down as a keyword for down for everyone or just me.com. So I typed down space and the site I wanted to get to and discovered the site I needed was indeed down. Now, I normally search for images by using my URL bar in Safari to search Google, and then I hit the Images tab to get the results I want. This week, I needed an image, and I simply typed GI in my search bar, followed by what I was looking for, and boom, on Google Images, there were all the images I wanted to see, done in one step. Now, one of the sites I search often is Bart's Programming by Stealth show notes. You can imagine I'm there a lot. These are at pbs.bartificer.net. Now, unfortunately, the keyword search extension won't work on his site because it's what's called a static site. That means it's not being generated by a server-side tool like WordPress, so there's no way to send a query string to it. This, uh, his site is actually a set of pages created by GitHub, the version control system used by most programmers. By using GitHub pages, Bart and I can collaboratively work on the text even at the same time and then push our changes to GitHub, which will in turn auto-generate the pages. Now, limitations come with this approach. Have you noticed there's no comments, for example? But from Bart's perspective, that lack of flexibility is a lack of complexity, which means it's an advantage. He has far less to manage than I do with the WordPress installation. Ask me how much fun I've had putting with WordPress in my database this week. You're about to hear about that. Anyway, while I was disappointed that I couldn't use keyword search to take me right to the results I want on pbs.bartificer.net on whatever device I was using, I came up with a workaround that will get me partway, but not all the way to what I want, but it's still pretty good. I took advantage of the text replacement functionality for macOS and iOS to create something like keywords. Remember our trick that if we type site colon followed immediately by the URL you want to search, you'll get search results only for the site you requested? Well, using that idea in system preferences, keyboard, text, I created a text replacement that would let me search the Programming by Stealth show notes just as quickly as with keyword search. In text replacements, I told it to replace SB with site colon pbs.bartificer.net. Now, text replacements expand instantly if you type a space after them. So now, if I want to search the Programming by Stealth show notes right from the URL bar in my browser, I can type SB followed by the search term I want. SB automatically expands to say site colon pbs.bartificer.net, so the only search results I get are within the PBS show notes. Now, this is pretty cool, and since text replacements sync over iCloud, I can use that on any of my iOS or macOS devices. It's not as cool as the keyword extension, though, because it leaves me on my search engine's homepage. If the term I was searching is only mentioned once on a site, I'd much rather be taken right to the site instead of having to click again to get there. It's not terrible, but it is an extra step, and automation is all about eliminating extra steps. Now, there's one more part of keyword search we should cover. In advanced settings, if you scroll down on any one of the um, uh, keyword searches that have been set up, there are three sections under that advanced settings. Remember when I searched for weight loss on smallstepspod.com? The search query put a plus sign between weight and loss because URLs don't work with spaces in them, so there must be a separator. In Keyword Search's advanced settings for individual sites, it explains that the default is to replace spaces with plus. 
but for a specific website, it may use a different character to separate the words in the search. When you do your test search to get the right format for the query string on a site, be sure to put in a couple of words so you can pay attention to what separator they use between the words. If it's not just a plus, just add that separator you do find in the, text, the space replacement section under advanced settings. The next advanced setting allows you to choose whether or not to URL escape the search phrase. Escaping in computer lingo means replacing characters that might be misinterpreted incorrectly because they're unexpected. For example, if you use the search box on smallstepspod.com for weight loss without putting quotes around it, you're likely to find every time Jill talked about weight or loss. But if you put the search term into quotes, you narrow your search term down to just where she talked about weight loss. But query strings and URLs can't contain quotes, so keyword search needs to substitute characters for those quotes. If you have the URL escape box checked, which is it is by default, and you enter the keyword search followed by weight loss in quotes, keyword search will replace both of those quotes with percent uh, 22, which believe it or not is the official way to encode those pesky spaces in URLs. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, just leave that checkbox for URL escape checked and move along. Now, if you uncheck the URL escape box in the keyword search query string, you will still get search results, but they'll be in your search engine, not in the site directly. There must be some edge case where this is useful, but I've never come across a circumstance where I need it. The final setting under advanced is interesting. By default, you're expected to put the keyword search first and follow it by the search term, but there's a dropdown to allow you to put it at the front or end of what you type. This would allow you to type weight loss space SSP or SSP space weight loss. If you want to be able to change all sites to allow the search term before the keyword, there's a global setting you can change as well. The bottom line is, I've managed to make this sound much more complicated than it actually feels to use it. As I said, if you're happy using keyword search to use uh, to search Amazon, archive.org, down for everyone, DuckDuckGo, eBay, Google, Google Images, Google Maps, IMDb, Stack Overflow, Wikipedia, Wolfram Alpha, and YouTube, then you never need to learn how to make your own queries. But if you want maximum flexibility, now you know how to do it. Keyword Search is free and open source, licensed under the Mozilla Public License 2.0, and it collects no data from you, and it will improve your productivity by reducing typing on Mac, iPad, and especially on the iPhone. If I could find a button to buy coffee for Norwegian developer Arne Martin Arlian, I would totally push that button. I mentioned last week during the show that podfeet.com had slowed down to a crawl, but I didn't know why. I thought it might be interesting to understand a little bit behind how the site works and what Bart and I tried to do and how William Reveal is now our hero. The good news for you is that I don't have a particularly deep knowledge about what we did, so I can't get super nerdy on you. Some nerdy, just not super nerdy. Podfeet.com, like 43% of all websites on the internet, is run on WordPress. Every word I type, along with every comment you make on the site, are stored in a MySQL database. WordPress takes the data from the database and displays it in your web browser and uses the settings I've given it to control things like how big the title of the posts are, what color links are, and whether there's a sidebar or top menus. WordPress and MySQL, along with the web server software and operating system, are all running on a virtual server that is currently hosted by a company called DigitalOcean. 
When things started to slow down on podfeed.com, I suggested to Bart that maybe I should just throw money at the problem and increase the capacity of the virtual server at DigitalOcean. I was paying for one virtual CPU with two gigabytes of RAM, 50 gigs uh, SSD storage, and a transfer maximum of four, two terabytes per month. That was pretty inexpensive at $10 per month, but for $5 per month extra, I could double the number of CPUs, increase the storage to 60 gigabytes, and have three terabytes of data transfer. When Bart and I first talked about it, we weren't entirely sure where the problem was coming from, but he suggested another path to consider. Remember I said the MySQL database was hosted on the same server as WordPress? He explained that I could move the database to a dedicated managed database server. This personally sounded like witchcraft to me at first. I didn't understand how this could even be possible. In a screen sharing session, Bart taught me how this works, and it's incredibly simple. First, I bought a managed database server for $15 a month from DigitalOcean. The database server has one virtual CPU, one gigabyte of RAM, and 10 gigabytes of disk. Now, my database is under 500 megabytes, so that'll do just fine. Next, Bart explained how to tell WordPress to point at the new database server. Buried in the giant pile of files that control WordPress is a very simple file called wp-config.php. We'll call it wp-config. In this file, which is literally 28 lines long, including comments, you tell WordPress the location of the database. For coming up on 17 years, the location of the database has been localhost. Bart explained that I simply had to change localhost to the path for the database in a new location, along with, uh, you know, the login and user ID. I couldn't do that yet, though, because I needed to actually move the database itself to the new managed database server. By the way, you notice I said my, my entire database is under 500 uh, megabytes and it's everything that's ever been written on the site. That gives you an idea of how small text is, doesn't it? Anyway, in MySQL, there's a dump command that actually means export. The method we plan to follow was to dump the database from the local web server and then import it into the managed database server. And this is where things took a very surprising turn. Bart is cautious, which comes from years of experience being burned, so he suggested I make a copy of my wp-config file and save it with the word orig at the end for original. We made a second copy of the config file and put new on the end. We edited the new config file to point at the new database server instead of localhost. That allowed us to swap the two files in and out as we tested things to see how well they were working. This one step was genius because I ended up swapping back and forth from orig to new about 38 times in this last week. In other words, things didn't go well at all. I'm probably going to make a dog's dinner of this next part of the explanation, but like I said, I don't really understand some of this stuff, but I've got to take a swing at it or else I can't tell the rest of the story. In computing, we use something called character encoding to assign numbers to graphical characters. Only through the process of character encoding can we store, transmit, and transform text using digital computers. For reasons that are baffling to me, there seem to be as many different flavors of character encoding as there are stars in the night sky. The one that seems to be in vogue these days is called UTF-8, but there's also Latin 1. There's one with Swedish, and I remember seeing a Slovakian character encoding in my adventures with Bart. Now, the reason I'm bringing up character encoding is that you have, if you have a character encoding mismatch in your database, weird characters show up on your blog. When we exported the database from my web server and imported it into the database server, characters like apostrophe and n-dash got very weird. 
Apostrophe was replaced with an A with a circumflex on top, the little little hat on top, and then a euro symbol, and then the trademark symbol. And N dash was replaced with the A with the hat and just the euro. It was very weird. This told us the character encoding was borked, but how and where did it occur? Bart and I worked with it for a while, trying to compare what the database looked like on my web server, what it looked on the, uh, on the new database server, and Bart was unable to figure out how to fix the problem. Luckily, because of the caution he took up front, I was able to quickly toggle back and forth between the two locations for the database just by switching which WP config I used. Bart was distressed that he hadn't solved it on the first try because it should have been simple. I wasn't terribly worried because at least the site was still working. Now, while time was passing until we could schedule our next play date, podfeed.com basically fell over in a heap. While I was working on the show notes late last week, I was getting up to 40-second page load times. You can imagine how fun that was. It's also why I warned you about it and told you that I was aware that things were not working very well. In the DigitalOcean web interface, I can see a few graphs, including one on CPU load. I could see that my server had been sitting at 100% for quite some time. Going back in time, I could see that this had been happening intermittently over the past few weeks. I decided to go back to my original idea and just throw many at the problem by doubling the number of virtual CPUs. This is much scarier than it sounds. I had to power down podfeed.com in order to resize it. I am proud to report that I searched for how to do it, powered down my own web server, did the resizing, and powered it back up all by myself. Didn't even call Bart. I did it. I was very proud of that. Now, my theory was that with 40-second page load times, the audience wouldn't really notice the difference if it was shut down for a little while. So I put a graph in the show notes that illustrates how after the power down and resizing, podfeed.com was no longer peaking at 100%. I was surprised, though, to see after a while that it would go up to 100%, but it wasn't getting stuck there. Now, before we went down any of these paths, I'd worked hard to eliminate unneeded plugins and even tested turning them all off and turning half back on and measuring the speed, but no single plugin appeared to be the root cause. While I was doing all these tests, I installed a plugin called Query Monitor. It's very cool. It gives me a red banner when I'm logged into my site and shows me how long the page has taken to load. Gone were the 40-second waits, and it was down to more like six or seven seconds, sometimes two or three. Still not great, but I could actually get work done. Now, I asked Bart what our next step would be, and he said, you know, it's time to send up the bat signal to the Nocilla Castaways to see if anyone's an expert in MySQL and all this character encoding nonsense and would also be willing to step in and try to help. He was at the end of his knowledge and couldn't figure out what to do next. I posted the problem and request for help onto our Slack at podfeed.com Slack in the Programming by Stealth channel, figuring that's where the nerdiest of nerds hang out. It's actually really, really fun in there. The most awesome William Reveal volunteered to step in and see if he could save the day. I am happy to report that he did indeed save the day. But it wasn't one of those, oh, hey, dummy, all you need to do is moments. It wasn't one of those. He spent two solid hours on a Zoom call with me to start. I loved every minute of this Zoom call because William is everything I want in someone helping me. He let me drive, so I learned a lot. He explained what he was asking me to do very clearly, and he let me interpret, interrupt him endlessly with clarifying questions. If he even listened to my suggestions, and in the two-hour span, one of my suggestions was actually helpful to what we were doing. Now, at the end of two hours, we had tested a lot of ways to try to fix the database, but we had not succeeded. We parted ways to give him some time to noodle some more. 
He had me export the database from my web server and from the new database server so that he could run experiments on his own. The I, One thing I, I need to point out, and I didn't say this earlier, is these problems of these funny characters, they're actually in the original database on my server. But we don't know why my, my current web server can, you know, show the characters correctly, but the new database server makes it not work. We can't figure out what the difference is. We know that the bad characters are in the data, but why can one of them, one database server display them properly and the other one can't? That's what we didn't know the answer to. Well, at three in the morning that night, William woke up and realized he needed to do some work for, for a client, something he needed to get done for them. And after he finished it, he just couldn't stand this not knowing how to fix my problem, and he took to the Googles to try to find a solution. He told me that he tried a lot of methods he found on the interwebs to eliminate these weird characters on export so they wouldn't be in the new database, but they kept failing. And then he found one path that worked. The basic problem with the character encoding of my database is that it's a combination of UTF-8 and Latin-1, so it's kind of double encoded, but we needed this to be all UTF-8. Now, you'd think you would just issue a command to convert it straight to UTF-8, but all methods to do that failed. The solution on which William finally settled converts the database table for the blog post to Latin-1 and then converts it to UTF-8. For the nerdiest of you, I included the full command in the show notes that finally worked for us, but for the rest of you, I will not read it out loud. William also did something else brilliant here. Instead of importing the database to the new server and then changing my wp-config to point to the new server and then searching for funny characters, he had a better method. He found a post by its ID that had a funny character in it ahead of time, and then we could just look at that one post in the database to see if it had disappeared. So we were looking at ID equals 8. After dumping the database to a file, after we ran this command that we hoped had fixed it, we ran the command on the file and asked MySQL to show us just that post with ID equals 8, and it, which happens to be my about page, and I clapped my hands with glee to see that the crazy characters were gone. I then mentioned that the miscreant characters were also in the titles. We searched for an ID of one with a problem and ran a similar MySQL command to fix the title table. I then clapped with glee because we saw them go away. Then I mentioned to William that the comments are also probably riddled with the same problem. Evidently, comments are in a bit of a different form than titles or posts because William had to do some jiggery-pokery to construct a somewhat different command, but in the end, he was victorious. We uploaded the newly cleansed UTF-8 version of my database to the new database server. I switched over to the new wp-config file, and podfeed.com is now up and running with the web server and the database on two different servers, which I still think is weird. So Bart and I chatted after William had vanquished the evil characters, and he said that even though my doubling of the virtual CPUs had helped a lot, he could still see the server hitting the peak for periods of time, so he was hoping that the database move was still the right way to go. The main thing we hope to get from this is faster performance, and I sure hope that ends up being the case. Now, while I'm delighted that podfeed.com is faster, if only for my own sanity while I'm writing, in the bigger picture, the experience reinforced the fact that the Nocilla Castaway community is a truly magical group of people. William Reveal stepped up to help all of us, dedicated a great deal of his own time, and I now consider him a friend. The most important thing he did here was to give Bart time. 
Without William, Bart would still have been beating his head against this when he could, and instead he was able to spend time teaching us programming and how to stay safe on the internet. So thank you, William, for giving all of us this wonderful gift. After I wrote up that article all about fixing my website and how William was my hero and how he moved my database, and after I doubled the number of virtual CPUs, I, I asked the entire Slack community to go to podfee.com and verify that things felt snappier. The vast majority of responses were that it was indeed responding much better than it was before. And then today, forgive my French, but things went in the pooper again. The response time slowed down to like 14-second page loads. Eventually, Steve reported to me that he couldn't log in at all. And the CPU load graphs on DigitalOcean showed it was bumping into 100% CPU utilization again. And remember, this is now on two virtual CPUs, so it's twice as much CPU load as I had before. I tried to take a look, and WordPress had lost connection to the brand new shiny database on the dedicated server. I pinged William, and just as we were starting to figure out what was wrong, it healed itself. William and I crawled every log file we could find looking for some root cause to this high CPU usage. We were unable to find anything concerning. Bart and I chatted quite a bit after that in text, and we still don't know the root cause. Now, there's a chance that my site is being attacked, but in a way that doesn't generate network traffic. Bart explained to me that you can make a very small HTTP request, such as search all of podfeed.com for the word pancake, and that would generate a lot of CPU load. The good news is that with a free Cloudflare account, I should be able to put my website behind their defenses, which are designed to ward off all kinds of denial-of-service attacks. When Bart can schedule some time to read up on what answers I should give to the questions Cloudflare are asking me as I try to set it up, we'll give it a try. While this does seem like the right step forward, I don't know, I'm not feeling confident we're on the right path since we really don't know what the heck is going on. I am learning a lot, and I stand by my statement that William is my hero, but I would sure like to get all of this behind me. As you've heard in this explanation of trying to solve all these terrible problems with podfeed.com, I've incurred $20 a month more in the cost of running podfeed.com. If you've been on the fence about becoming a supporter of the show, this week would be a really swell time to join the other hero supporters. Remember that while I've set Patreon up to ask you to support on a per-episode basis, you can always set a monthly maximum so you can really control how much you spend. Ryan Walden has been a supporter of the podcast for a long time, but this week he actually upped his pledge by $2 a month. If we can get a few more people to become patrons, this faster experience from which we hope you'll all benefit won't come out of my own pocket. Thank you, Ryan, for being so awesome for so long and being even more awesome now. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. Uh, so how's it going out there, Bart? Um, well, this time last week, I actually said to myself, it's been a great winter. We're only on our third named storm. As of now, we are experiencing Franklin, which is the sixth letter of the alphabet. So in this week, we had Dudley on Wednesday, Eunice on Friday, and we now have Franklin on Sunday. So that's oh, what I get for geez. saying, oh, it's been a great winter. No, it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how these things oh, well. go. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I, be so we I believe... Not thanks to me, but uh, gosh darn it, I did try. Uh, but I, I believe it's much less stormy on the Podfeet server. Oh my gosh, it's 
the the lack of annoyance to me. I don't care about anybody else, but I'm I'm in and out of that website all the time, and it right. was driving me crazy how slow it was. Yeah, because it's not one blog post. Because now that you do separate posts for every article, you're in there like always. Yeah, just imagine when you push to Git with some code, if every time you did it, it took 40 seconds and you had to just sit there and do nothing. Yeah, I'd go crazy. That, that's what happened when I did updates, you know? Let me let me refresh the page to see if that image got in the right place. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't straightforward because I foolishly gave you to believe this would be a very straightforward thing. We just take your database... And we move it. I mean, that's the theory. (laughs) (laughs) Should have worked. What we didn't know was that this uh, database, having been around so long, it had crossed over versions of MySQL that changed things, apparently. I'm still not sure if it's MySQL or WordPress, but at some point in the past, translations between Latin 1 and UTF-8 were broken. Yeah, but you couldn't solve it, which was interesting. That was a little terrifying for me. If Bart doesn't know it... No, I believe my actual words were send up the bat signal, which you took really literally. I was sort of being euphemistic, but you actually posted in the Slack, Bart is sending up the bat signal. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, Grammarly has changed that to bat dash signal. It's not bat space signal. So apparently there's an official way to do it. Oh, good. I get to have a dash. I love my dashes. Right. Well, thanks to William, we are uh, we're up and running now. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, hats off to William for some grade A detective work there. Uh, that that was. I was reading along, going, "Oh, I'm so glad I'm not solving that because I don't think I would have got there." It was like double UTF eight encoding or something. So, nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah, I th- and as I said at the end of uh, what everyone has just heard is that uh, what he did was he bought Bart time. And Bart is very appreciative. Very, very, very appreciative. Because I, I don't have enough of that. And I can't seem to make more. Another thing I do, the clock doesn't obey. It's very annoying. Right, right, right. Well, we should probably get stuck in then. Yeah, so quite a bit to talk about in terms of security. Um, a bit of good news first. You have referenced it a few times. Um, this bizarre story about the governor of Missouri responding to a journalist doing a view source and HTML page and to his horror, finding social security numbers of teachers. Um, the response to that by the actual website owner was, I think it was some sort of board of education, was to fix the problem, which is good. Uh, the response from the governor was to try to prosecute the journalist. Right, and the what, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, is that what he used? Of course, one of the single most abused laws in the whole of the United States legal code. Uh, thankfully, uh, it's not really the governor's job to do prosecutions. That's not something the governor actually gets to do. That's something that uh, the I think is uh, is it your state prosecutor gets to do. And the state prosecutor went, nope, we shall not be doing that. <laughs> Good. So, Good. Yeah, happy ending there. So that, that is at least something. Um, the Pegasus NSO group saga took a bit of a, I, I call it a slightly humorous turn. Um, the Israeli government have lost an investigation be- or have launched an investigation because it appears Pegasus was used against them. Tee hee hee. <laughs> oh, that's, that's sweet. That is exceptionally sweet, given that they were pimping that software all around the world. So, yeah, that came home to roost, probably. So we, I don't What's think they launched that, that you needlessly. you sleep with wolves? I yeah. Think that's the no, phrase. dogs. Fleas. Dogs. 
Oh, okay. That's the saying here. If you lay with dogs, you get fleas. Okay. <laughs> uh, and on another bit of follow-up, um, the IRS's move to uh, to require biometrics for online access, that is on hold, or not on hold. They've decided you don't have to do the biometric bit. So they're still going to have verification of IDs, but you're not going to have to do the biometrics. And the biometrics in particular here were uh, with your face, which is highly problematic for people with color and literally like a factor of a thousand for black women. Yeah, because they're because all of this stuff is trained on data sets that seem to come from the tech industry. It tends to be yeah. middle aged white men. It, that that does remind me of a uh, uh, an episode of Clear and Vivid with Alan Alda. He was mm. interviewing a, a social scientist who works on um, artificial intelligence and. She quoted a, 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 a data set that was created by Amazon to try to scan resumes to see which were the best ones. And 100% of the resumes it said were good were men. I'm and then the, who do you think it was trained on? The men working in engineering at Amazon. Yeah, it was trained on their previous hiring. So that's like saying, let us fossilize forevermore all of our mistakes from the past. <laughs> that'll set that in stone forever because that's a good idea yeah, yeah. but yeah that was nice to see how the irs changed their mind on that and, and uh good on them yeah exactly it was a good outcome um lots of stuff happening in the world of social media uh so signal have finally provided a mechanism for changing your cell phone number because that was always a slight problem like signal is great from a security point of view but it was always a bit of a niggle that your unique identifier was your cell phone number as if that never changes but of course it does. So now there's a way to migrate your account to a new cell phone number if you change number. So that is a good development. That's interesting. You know, in, in my childhood, your phone number changed every time you moved. Right. Well, yes. Yeah. In the, when has your phone number changed? Mine hasn't. As it happens, mine hasn't. But were I ever to be unfortunate enough to be doxxed or to, you know, to have something happen, I would, first thing yeah. I would do would be change my number. Right, right. Um, so I am happy to say that I still have the very first cell phone number from my very first cell phone from 1997. Actually, I realized when I switched from Verizon to AT&T, they changed my number. That was, But that was probably 25 years ago. Before the days of number portability. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind of cool now. that it used, You used to be able to tell where someone lived and what their cell phone provider was by their phone number. <laughs> and now, yeah, all gone. Uh, Instagram have rolled out two features which uh, I more describe as vital. And to be honest, I think they actually are pretty good. Um, security checkup, which is their version of that thing Google does from time to time to make you, you know, here's your settings. Are you sure that's what you want? And also your activity, which allows you to see what you've been sharing with who. So, oh, okay. So, so I guess I always I looking I think forward I looking mentioned... back. Sorry. Okay. Okay. I always think the the Google one always cracks me up because according to Google, I go to this one particular liquor store three <laughs> days a week, and I stay there for about forty five minutes. It's that... where I park my car when I go for my run. I was just going to say it has to be something innocent like that. It's like, just yeah. because my car is nearby does not mean I am in the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm, more, I'm like two blocks away from that liquor store too, but I, but I start my run and I end my run at the liquor store. Yeah. Yeah, how big do they think the liquor store is? If they, if they imagine you in there with a trolley going all that distance 
all that fast. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. anyway. Um, who's next in the list? Snapchat. Um, they have launched a location sharing service where you can share your location with a single person and they have a lot of controls in place. So it would seem to be a very sensible system from a safety point of view because, you know, location sharing is a, is a bit of an old dangerous thing. So I, I think they've done it well. And the other thing that caught my eye on Snapchat is they seem to be trying to find a business model that doesn't involve selling everyone's privacy. So they're experimenting with um, allowing creators to share the ad revenue of stuff, of stories that they post. Huh. So it's it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. So we shall see how that works out. Speaking of experimenting, Twitter are expanding the uh, beta group for their safety mode feature. Um, now, most annoyingly, they're still doing it as a sort of a randomized trial. It seems like they're doing some sort of drug test. Um, but 50% of users in the US, UK, Ireland, Canada, New Zealand and Australia are now going to have safety mode available to them. I have not had any sort of notification, even though I am in Ireland, so I don't know if I got ahead or a tail on that one. Uh, but if they offer it to what me, is, I'm taking what it. What is safety mode? It's their it's their AI and stuff for stopping annoying people from making succeeding in making contact with you. Huh. We talked like we talked about it a while back, and I, I didn't have time today to reread what we talked about last time. But it's okay. it's about stopping. So Twitter can recognize patterns when someone's being abusive, right? Because if you make a post and the responses to it are nothing like the normal people who normally reply to you, there's this instant pile on. Like that's really obvious from their algorithm. Sorry, from their yeah. server's point of view, it's like okay, this post is abnormal. And then if that if that coincides with their signal for, and these are naughty words, well, yeah, it doesn't take a genius to figure out there's something, you're being attacked. Is. So is this something that would automatically block those things from you? Yes. Or that you press a button to say, make it stop? No, so you would press a button to say, if you see something happening, never show it to me. So oh. the idea being oh, that nice. you would be saved the anguish of having to see it. Because if... Basically, if someone's harassing you and you have to report it after the fact, well, it's done. You've been harassed. Yeah, exactly. It is done. So this way, the downside is if their algorithm gets it wrong, you might miss some tweets. And I'm thinking, well, I treat it as a river I stick my head into from time to time. So if I miss a couple of tweets, I really don't care. And if this saves me from the internet's toxicity, I really do care. So if they offer it to me, I am turning it straight on. That's interesting. So this is sort of a, um, you know, if a tree falls in the woods problem, if you don't see it, is it still happening? <laughs> to some extent, I, I believe there was some sort of way that you could look, if you could proactively see what it had blocked. Okay. So, But I, I mean, if was... everyone else is seeing all this stuff saying you're a terrible person. Yeah, but a lot of the stuff when it's added at people, the, the point of it is to actually make your life miserable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So the, again, I, as I say, I haven't been offered it, but if I am, I am going to turn it on and then I, then I can give you first-hand experience. Um, the fact that they're expanding it to this big of a test group is a hopeful sign that the testing is going well. So we shall see. And then, then, so, so far, I think you'll agree this is all happy, happy, joy, joy, right? All the yeah. other social media companies are doing good things. 
So meta. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they're not doing so much as have done. Um, so about, what, six months ago or so, Meta announced, they were then Facebook, that they were turning off facial recognition and deleting all the data. And at the time, there was a lot of people saying, um, I think this is an attempt to avoid getting in trouble because we know there's an investigation open in Texas. Well, Texas decided that it doesn't really matter if you commit a crime and then throw it all away. If you've broken the state's facial recognition laws you've broken the state's facial recognition laws. So Texas have gone ahead and sued Facebook slash Meta over what they had been doing for years before they threw all the data out. Well, this sounds like a happy, happy, joy, joy story to me. I guess it is. It's just, you know, <laughs> Facebook were being slimy. Yeah, okay. Oh, newsflash. Yeah, okay. Fair, Stop no the fair, presses. Fair. Actually, the next one is, isn't slimy either. The next one made me genuine, like both... Both myself and the better half were reading our news feeds at the same time because I heard this big laugh coming from the room next door as I was reading this news story and I immediately heard, hey, love, did you hear about Facebook? And I was like, I'm reading it now. So they threatened Europe with, well, if you don't be nice to us, we'll leave. And the answer from the European politicians was, great, please. Well, I loved it. It was a particular politician who had uh, left he had gotten his account hacked for Facebook, mm. and so he he got rid of Facebook and Instagram, and he said, it's wonderful without it. Go ahead. Take them away from Europe. I think we'd all be happier if you did. Yeah, it was really it was a German minister, I believe, and there was a Danish minister as well also chimed in. It's like, yeah, please. I just say, yeah, yeah. what a wonderful way to call their bluff. We'll take our ball and go home. We don't want your ball. It's flat. <laughs> So I did enjoy that part of the story. I think there's some subtleties to this that it wasn't just them being petulant and saying, if you don't let us invade your privacy, we're going to leave. There's there's some conflicting laws in the United States and in Europe that they're getting caught between, that if these things aren't resolved, they literally can't well, be in Europe. No, they would have to split. They would have to do what Microsoft do. So Google... And Facebook and a bunch of other companies have decided that they will have one giant big cloud where everything is provided for the whole planet. Mm. Oh, okay. And companies like Microsoft use different infrastructure for Europe and America. And so the European okay. infrastructure follows our laws and the American infrastructure follows your laws and th there okay. not be problem. Okay. But then, I thought it was something about... Uh yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that is... It's yeah. transfer of data okay. across the Atlantic. Yeah, that is the root of it all. Right. Um, and what it means is that, well, Microsoft don't make their money by invading people's privacy, which is why they have no problem segregating the data. But if Facebook were mm -hmm. to do the same, they could invade Europeans' privacy within Europe within limits, and they could invade American privacy within America within different limits, but they couldn't invade the whole world's privacy at once. <laughs> which is not an existential threat. Is or is not? Well, it isn't. But they want, they're making it out to be an impossible problem to solve. And my answer is, have have a chat with the guys in Redmond. They're they're fine with this. You know, they'll they'll help you how to do it. They'll they'll help you configure your servers. It's quite easy, actually. You can just choose the zone. Anyway, so uh, I just want to keep pointing out the most delicious news. Uh, I, I probably said it last time we talked, but I just love looking at the graph because it continues to get work, worse for Facebook. Uh, Meta's stock uh, has dropped 33%. Ooh, since uh, that and earnings it did, it, 
Yeah, since the earnings call, it dro- well, it dropped 25% overnight. It has continued to decline. It is a steady decline. It's now, it was at 286, it's at 182. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not only staying down, it's dropping from there. And wow. it, part of it was that they lost, uh, their, their daily active users went down by a million. And I like to say, and I helped. Yeah, and I, I honestly think that's way, way, way bigger news than app tracking transparency was. I, I really think the the magic has worn off news was the problem there. Not mm. Apple's privacy has cost us a few million. Like it's like we don't have people yeah. anymore. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I think I heard it was mostly in India that the that the million drop happened, which is Well there your brick countries are supposed to be the future, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a big deal. Um, and just to sort of underline that story. So my argument has been Facebook blaming it all on Apple doesn't make sense because the same headwinds are affecting all their competitors. And Twitter had their earnings call. Um, and the headline simply says, Twitter profit falls, but company dodges impact of iOS 14 privacy changes. So, you know, I don't think it's ATT. Facebook, I really don't. Yeah. But keep throwing Apple or, under the bus. It's easier. Well, it, it, it can still be ATT, but it can tell you that, boy, do they depend on invading our privacy. <laughs> right. That's true, actually. Yeah. So basically, their business model was very, very fragile, resting on one pillar. And that pillar has now become significantly less. And it's hitting them badly. That is the other way to look at it. Yeah. By the way, I, I, the world's smallest violin comes out for this one. You know, it's... <laughs> Um, the next, the first deep dive of three, they're not that deep, um, is kind of a follow-up, which is why I put it straight after the follow-ups. So we talked in great detail last time about the whole AirTag situation. Uh, and since then, Apple have actually come back and announced uh, that they're going to improve their existing safeguards. And I'm very careful to phrase it that way because what makes the AirTags different to all the other competitors is that they've had safeguards from day one, whereas Tile haven't actually caught up yet, let alone expanded on. So Apple are now on their second iteration of their protections and the others haven't got their first iteration of protection yet. So Apple are making a bunch of changes, some in the short term. We're not ex- we don't have exact dates, but you know, near term. And some in the somewhat longer term, but still this year, but we don't have exact dates. So the first and simplest thing they're doing, which I think is perfect, is when you set up an AirTag, you're going to get a message saying, just a reminder, this product is for tracking your stuff, not other people. It is a crime to track other people without their permission. We know who you are and we will tell law enforcement when presented with a subpoena. This is not a change like in policy. Last piece, right? <laughs> this isn't a change in policy, but this is Apple saying to your face, "No, no, seriously, we know who you are. It is wrong to do this, and if you do this, we will tell the we will we will hand over your information on request." Well, yeah, and the, the we know who you are is when you set up an AirTag, it's tied to your Apple ID, so <laughs> they know who you are. Yeah, they because, literally know who you are. Yeah, you paid for this thing. We know who you are. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's, you know, it's again, it, that's not a change in their policies. That is just basically taking the bit that was in the deep down in the privacy policy 
on sticking it in your face, going auga, auga, auga. It's simply a statement of fact, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's easy. So that's the first thing they're doing. You you could suggest, as somebody could create a, a, a throwaway Apple ID, but you, I'm pretty sure you, well, you'd have to have a credit card attached to it. Why do you need a credit card? You certainly need to have a device attached to it. It would be very hard to not connect it to something that would be enough to go the rest yeah, of the way, there's right? there's dots all over the place that can be... Rejoined. You'd, you'd have to, yeah, so you'd have to have an iPhone. Yeah. You'd have to have bought, say, through... Say you buy it through some dodgy method, but you have to have service. Yeah. Right? Got to so have cell service. Got to have yeah. cell service, so you're paying somebody with another... Yeah, they got you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess if you work really, 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 really hard, but at that point, why not just get a GPS tracker? Like, if you're going to go through all that effort... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I I can't remember who it was because I'd love to give credit, but someone said AirTag, the tracker for dumb criminals. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Which so it is? Is it illegal everywhere? Apple say Apple don't say Apple say it is illegal in many places, and I am sure there are places where it it's probably grey as to exactly whether or not this would fall under some sort of you know, ooh, but. Actually, no. I know for a fact there are countries in the world where wives are considered property, where it would be perfectly legal to track your wife. Yeah. Saudi <coughs> Arabia. Possi- possibly mandatory. Or, or even required. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saudi yeah. <coughs> Arabia. Um, anyway, so Apple's wording is a little bit careful not to say it is definitely illegal, but they basically say it is illegal in many places, or, or most places, I think they might even say. It's, anyway, it's I love it. The other thing they're doing is they're updating their docs. So their, their online help page is getting another layer of TLC. And it had already gotten some TLC the week before last, so they're giving it even more TLC. Uh, and then they are also... Uh, what are they doing? So, yeah, and then they're doing some longer-term stuff. Um, so at the moment, uh, the alerts that you get when there's a tracker discovered following you are quite vague, which I think is to protect the privacy of the, you know, the owner of the lost stuff. But this is causing confusion because it's not only AirTags that are on the Find My network. AirPods also are on the Find My network. And so when you're told there is a device moving with you, it could actually be your kid's friend's AirPods in the backseat. So it could be entirely innocent, but you can't tell from the notification what it is. So they're going to, de-anonymize isn't the right word, but they're going to add a little bit more detail into those alerts to say there are AirPods following you, there is an AirTag following you, or I think the third one is a third-party device following you, because, of course, the API is open to other vendors like uh, Chipolo, I think, have a tracker as well. So they're going to put more information into what it is that's following you, which is good. I just figured out something. Go on. You don't need to get. You don't need to track somebody with an AirTag. Just put your AirPods in their pocket. Arguably, <laughs> and the AirPods aren't going to. Well, but the AirPods will let them know. Well, they'll also run out of battery a heck of a lot quicker than an AirTag. True. Yeah, that's right. Dang it! I thought it was being a smart, <laughs> illegal person. <laughs> I was going to say, don't do, don't make life easier for the dumb criminals. Um, The other thing they're doing then is uh, they are going to allow precision finding on a tracker that's not yours that is following you. So at the moment, you can only precision find your own stuff, which was considered a privacy feature. 
But Apple mm-hmm. have rethought this and went, well, actually, if we know that there's a device suspiciously following you and we're telling you, we're alerting you, why wouldn't we help you find it? And when you look at it that way, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that wasn't a very good decision, was it? So they're changing their mind on that. And so you'll be able to do precision finding on a an AirTag or AirPods or a Chipolo, whatever it is that's moving with you, which will be very helpful. Uh, they're also going to change the beeping. So it's going to be a, they're tweaking the frequencies because apparently some research has found that if they make the frequencies, I can't remember whether they're shifting them up or down, but basically shifting the frequencies is probably going to make them easier to hear. So they're going to tweak the frequencies. Very sensible thing to do. And they're also going- I think I also heard that they, they're going to make the um, uh, the iPhone actually blinks or something. There, there's some visual thing too, so that well, they're synchronizing. So at the moment, the phone alerts happen and the beeps happen, but they don't. They're not in coordinating with each other because one of them is coming from the device and one of them is coming from your phone. Well, they're now going to coordinate so that when the device makes a noise, your phone is all is going to alert you simultaneous with the noise. Right. I. I but I thought there, I thought there was something else. Well, it's a notification anyway. on your phone, which is new. sure. So that sure. is a visual. That is the when they say a visual, they mean a notification on your phone. Right. Okay. And it's going to happen in sync, which is a step forward. And wow. then the last thing they're being a little bit vague about, for I think very obvious reasons, they're going to continue to tweak the algorithm to get better at detecting suspicious movement. And they they had said from day one they're going to tweak that algorithm, and they say they're going to keep tweaking that algorithm. So. Good. Thank you, Apple. Do indeed continue to learn um, and get better at this. That That is appreciated. So I feel extra confident in my statement that Apple are way ahead of the curve here because the New York Times decided to put my words to the test, not because they're my words, because everyone's been saying it. Um, so the, uh, their tech journalist, Kashmir Hill, with her partner's permission, hid in or around his person three trackers, an AirTag, a tile and the GPS tracker, and basically watch to see how effectively the different devices succeeded in tracking and what protections the different devices offered her partner. So the tile just loses because it's not a very good tracker and it has no protection. The (laughs) GPS is a superb tracker, the best of all and has the single worst safety protections because, of course, it's not even in Bluetooth range, right? It is completely opaque to you. It is a GPS and cellular device moving with you. There is there is no way for you to figure that out. That is, and has always been, the most nefarious kind of tracker, and they've been around for a decade or more. And then the AirTag is sort of in the happy medium. It has the best privacy protections by far. I believe the exact quote was... Uh, Everything else is, quote, way worse than Apple, is how the article puts it. Uh, And Apple's precision is close to, but not quite as good as the GPS. And what they did notice is that Apple's precision improves when you move from rural to urban areas. Because, of course, it works by Bluetooth pinging off people's iPhones. So, of course, if you're out among the cows, it's going to be much less effective than if you're in the heart of New York City. So that's sort of, you know, QED, this is how it works. 
I was really enjoying the uh, the different perspectives on where you live. Uh, John Syracuse was talking on ATP on the Accidental Tech Podcast about how useless it is to put an air tag on your dog because if your dog gets away, there's not going to be any air any iPhones <laughs> near it. And I just started howling, laughing because. Yeah. Obviously, he lives in a rural area. You can't, you have to go like 200 miles to get away from an iPhone where I live. Yeah. If my dog gets loose, my dog is near all the iPhones. Yeah, I mean, in in my case, there would be fewer, but there would still be sufficient. You know, even here in Ireland, even if you get rural, there's still a house, you know, you're still talking 10 houses per square mile or something, even in the middle of nowhere. Whereas if you go into the boonies in America... You can be quite alone. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that covers it off. And then the other, the other oh, you skipped one part. You uh, skipped the part about the uh, oh. New York Attorney General. Yes, I did. I knew there was something I was forgetting. Uh, New York Attorney General uh, Letitia Letitia James. James, my favorite. I like her a lot, actually. Um, yeah. She her her office. I, I doubt she worded it herself. Her office have put out a um, sort of a, a. I guess it's a warning. But it's not sensationalistic. It's not over the top. It is a very sensible description of what is going on, the fact that it is being abused, some non-malicious ways in which you can get the warning, which almost none of the other law enforcement stuff, which is mostly hyperventilating, have mentioned the fact that it could just be your kid's AirPods. That's that's not something that the, the hyperventilators mention. Um, so it's basically a very sensible description of the issues and very good advice on, well, here's the safeguards, here's how they work. And, you know, so if you have an Android phone, you should download this app. If you have an iPhone, it will pop up these warnings. This is what they mean. And then some advice for what to do should it happen to you. All very sensible stuff. So I think that was very good to see. And I, I was I was genuinely scared when I heard the words, Attorney General issues AirTag warning. I thought, oh, God, no. Uh. <laughs> but no, there's... This is actually saying and basically mirroring Apple's advice to a very large extent. So that was good. And then the other story that crossed my radar was just to sort of underline the point that Apple's protections work. Pennsylvania man arrested over AirTag stalking, thanks to iOS alert. That's what it's supposed to do. So there we go. And then our next deep dive, I'm afraid, which says happy, happy, joy, joy. So Google had a big blog posty announcement describing Android privacy sandbox. And this was billed as being Google's answer to app tracking transparency, only better. Well, better is really an opinionated thing. Better for who? Better from whose point of view? And the one thing I can say categorically is not better from a user point of view. Not better from a privacy point of view. The only people I see it being better for is advertisers. Because... First off, they're going to do nothing for two years. And secondly, everything they do do is going to be opt-in. So, as Rob Amando, Amadeo, writing for Ars Technica, put it really quite well in his summary, since Google is not making any privacy changes mandatory, it is basically asking advertising companies to voluntarily stop collating data on users. If advertisers wanted to do that, they could make that change today. So this is just vague ideas of what they might do in two years that is opt-in by advertisers. Yeah. 
So the only things we have a little bit of firmness on are that it will include their new Topics API. Okay, fine. For, you know, things that opt into the Topics API, it is better than third-party cookies. But it's kind of a web thing. They're making an equivalent of Topics for app-to-app tracking called Fledge, which will group customers into audiences for advertisers. And those audiences are not topics of interest like on the web stuff. They're things like, has left stuff in cart? Which is a very different type of audience that they're grouping people into. So it's very, very advertising focused. Interesting. By the way, that's a that's a little hot tip. Always leave your thing in your cart for a while. Yeah, because often they'll offer you get you an email stuff. that says, "Hey, you want ten percent off that thing you left in your cart?" Yeah, I do it a lot actually. I just go, well, to be honest, I do it because I, I like to shop around. So I'll find I find something and say, "Well, if all else fails, I'll buy this and I'll leave it in my cart." And then I'll find ten more things, and then at the end of the day, I'll go to all of my open tabs and click checkout on one cart, and all the rest can stay open. <laughs> and they offer me things anyway. Uh, the the other thing then is they're offering a new sandboxed API that the ad networks can use to write the code that the app developers embed into the app to take part in the ad network. And the idea being that this sandbox would stop the ad APIs from doing naughty things, which is not a bad idea, right up until the point where it's prefixed with opt-in. So <laughs> if advertising networks want to have their tracking code not be mean, they can choose to put themselves into a sandbox. Well, that's really going to help. Because if they want to yeah, not be mean, they can just not be mean. It seems to me in the next two years, Google's tune is probably going to have to change. I think this is purely a case of let us make some noises that sound positive and hope that no one digs too deep. Mm. Right. Yeah, this is a PR stunt. This is not a technical, this is not a real plan. This is not technically meaningful. This is a PR stunt. And it's not going over well as it shouldn't. And finally, I have a fire extinguisher. I wasn't sure if this is worthy of a deep dive, but it was more than a news story, so it's a it's in the middle. There is a news story making the rounds that there is a grey hat company called, what are they, Passware, uh, and they sell a service to crack full disk encryption on Macs. And if your Mac doesn't have a hardware chip, then there's no speed bump on brute forcing, so they can brute force through a poorly chosen um, full disk encryption password on a Mac quite quickly because people are bad at passwords. There's no speed limit. So in you know 10 hours, they can plow their way through a dictionary of common passwords and get into a Mac without a T2 chip. Now, the T2 chip, one of its functions is that it rate limits guesses. And if you read the headlines carefully on this story, they all say that, you know, They have found a way to crack passwords, but they haven't found a way to get beyond the... They haven't found a way to just get the password. They found a way to attack the password. So what they have bypassed is only the rate limiting. So that means... What does it mean to to attack a password? To guess, 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 guess. Guess, guess. But I thought you said they already know what the password is. No, 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 they don't. No, no, sorry, no, no. Okay. The service they sell is cracking full disk encryption. Okay, so they got past the how many guesses do I get? Correct, and that is the only thing they have gotten past. Now, oh, okay. If you use a bad password, they can now make fifteen guesses a second. 
That is a heck of a lot faster than you should be able to do on a T2 protected computer. But it's also a heck of a lot slower than how quickly you can attack passwords with FPGAs on websites. So it is many orders of magnitude more efficient than it should be, but it is still actually quite slow in the grand scheme of things. So if you have an even vaguely decent password on your Mac, even with this 15 guesses a second, you should be safe for one or two millennia. (laughs) However, if you reuse a password that has made its way into the... Because there are so many data breaches, there is now a database of common passwords. If you're in that database, you can be cracked in about 10 hours because that's how long it takes to go through the database. Hmm. So the advice is very simple. Use a good password on your Mac. That is all. (laughs) And remember, this doesn't stop the joys of Touch ID. So with Touch ID, your good password is needed when you boot up the Mac and every few days after that. Uh, No, you need it a lot. You need it a lot. There's all kinds of times in... in, uh... For some reason, there's certain things in system preferences that make you type it in. Uh, I type that password a lot, and I've got the watch and Touch ID, and I have to type it pretty often, several times a week. Is it possible you're a non-typical user? Because the only Mac I have with Touch ID is my work Mac, where I behave much more like a norm than I do on all of my other Macs, and I almost never have to type my password on my work Mac. What I don't understand is there's things on the, like I said, in system preferences, I think it's like when every once in a while iCloud gets its panties in a bunch and said, yeah, you got to go re-authenticate. I'm not done. Oh my God, you've never set this up before. I think it's a bug actually, but it happens every once in a while. There are many problems with iCloud that I have. That isn't one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, the app store sometimes requires it. Ah, okay. So there's the advantage of a work Mac. Um, Intune takes care of my software. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Microsoft, basically. It's the company's problem. They push stuff at my Mac. It just happens. I'm not logged into the App Store. Okay. And I still get my software updates. Anyway, um, so, you, you know, basically a good password protects you. And the only way to attack this is with physical access, because this isn't some kind of remote problem. This isn't a vulnerability that could take over your Mac, right? This is just guessing your password more quickly than you should. So this yeah. is in no way a remote attack. So it is something to be aware of, particularly if you're traveling to interesting countries. Mm. Um, But for most of us, most of the time, this is a datum. And the real reason it's in the show notes is simply to say, if you've half read a thing that tells you the T2 has been hacked, don't panic. Okay, so that's why we got the fire extinguisher. That's why we got the fire extinguisher. Don't let your hair on fire. Precisely. Action alerts. Now, I don't want you to light your hair on fire. I want you to go and patchy, patchy, patch, patch. So Apple have fixed a zero-day vulnerability under active exploitation in WebKit, i.e. in anything that touches the World Wide Web. So Safari, HTML views on the watch, like all the browsers on iOS because they all have to use WebKit under the hood. And it's the web. And that's the kind of place where people have nasty stuff, like in ads and stuff. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Don't delay on that one. And that mm. covers iOS, iPadOS, and watchOS. So patch, patch, patch. And macOS, sorry. I've got that one. <laughs> um, meanwhile, over in cloud Google, uh, zero day in Chrome browser. For all the same reasons, 
patchy, patchy, patch, patch, because the internet is a really dangerous place with lots of untrusted code by naughty people. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. There is also what uh, Intego describe as a mystery security update for macOS Big Sur and Catalina. It's not clear if this is a fix for that app WebKit vulnerability or if this is the fixes for the last major version of all the OSs released two weeks ago getting rolled up to Big Sur and Catalina. But whatever it is, there's security updates, so patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Meanwhile, meanwhile, over in Redmond, it's been Patch Tuesday. So there's a whole bunch of important stuff from Microsoft. Everybody wants to play. Everyone wants to play. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And then our friends at Adobe had a bad day. So Adobe sell a product called Adobe Commerce, which is sort of a deluxe version of an open source project they maintain called Magento. And Magento powers a spectacular amount of online stores. Like if you're, you know, making cool key rings and you want to sell them cheap, you're either on Etsy or you have your own Magento store or Magneto. Magento. Jeez. It's, not, it's not an X-Man. It's, it's Magento. Magneto would have been a cooler name. but It would have. And Steve Gibson got it wrong for about an hour on Security Now. Um, and Leo finally corrected him after the segment. And he was like, oh, I thought I'd spelled that wrong. It's like, no, you hadn't spelled it wrong. You've been saying it wrong. <laughs> um, so basically, it would... What it allows the attacker to do is to inject a password scanner, not a password scanner, a credit card sniffer into your web store. And so everyone who uses your website has their, has their credit card sniffed, which is bad. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And then so this is if you run your own web server that you have e-commerce on, there's a good chance it's got Magento under the hood. So if it asks to update, Say yes. Yes. In fact, proactively go and check. And the other place you could have it is Magento is a WordPress plugin. Sorry, Magento is available as a WordPress plugin. So Uh, you could have a managed WordPress site where you're not responsible for the server, but you do have the WordPress admin panel under your control. So it's up to you to go in there and click update on your plugins. So update, update, update. So if you run your own web store that takes credit cards, just check that it isn't in need, it isn't shouting for your attention. Because if it is, do it. You know, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And then finally, there's a somewhat ironic security update for PHP. So if you run your own web server and you don't have Yum set to do automatic updates for you behind your back, then you should probably let Yum or AppGet or whatever your package manager of choice is on your server update your PHP. Because in irony of ironies, there is a security bug in the PHP functions provided to help you sanitize sanitize user input. (laughs) So the thing, the biggest cause of vulnerabilities online is not validating user input. So everyone should be using these functions and these functions actually have a security vulnerability on them, which the guys at Naked Security had far too much fun with. Irony alert! PHP security flow and input validation code. But it is kind of ironic. So I'll give them that. So, you know, if your server isn't automatically patchy, patchy, patch, patching, well, patchy, patchy, patch, patch it. So that's a lot of patching to do, but uh, yeah. it's important. All the things. All the things. Uh, in terms of worthy warnings, then, there is some sort of intermittent bug that seems to affect some people, but not everyone. And there is some confusion as to whether or not it's been fixed. But there are versions of Zoom for the Mac, which fail to turn off your mic when you finish a call. 
Actually, it's even more vague than that, than all the vagaries you added. Oh. What they know is the light stays on. They're not sure the microphone is actually still <laughs> recording. <laughs> I'd rather it that way around. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So basically, if you're using Zoom and you hang up a call and the little green light is still being green at you, well, figure out why. Or maybe force quit Zoom. Probably the way to go. Get it out of your menu bar. And then the light should go out and all should be well. And right. even if the lights on, all might be well. But better safe than sorry. <laughs> but so they issued a fix. But are they people saying it's still not fixed? Yes, there are people who've applied the fix uh-huh. and say it's still happening. So that's that's mm. that extra layer of confusion, just to nice. confuse things up even more. And it's not like we're using Zoom a lot these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an online service you can use to help you sort of book time called FlexBooker, and. The reason I'm particularly calling this one out is because they are now on their second strike in terms of losing all their customers' data. And being on your second strike already makes me cranky at you. But when your second strike is, oh, we didn't actually set up a password on our Amazon Bucket, I'm like, okay, you guys are amateurs. And if you're a Flex Flex Booker user, I would have a good read of this and then ask myself the question, why? Am I a Flexbooker user? And is there an alternative out there? Because So this this app does lets you broadcast what your calendar looks like so people can choose a time to meet with you? That is my One understanding of, of it. Yeah, okay. I'm not a user, uh, but that is my understanding. So it's a way of offering people to book appointments with you. So I guess you can whitelist and say, you know, let people book me between these hours and these hours or stuff like that. Okay. And there are lots of services for doing that kind of thing. Um, Doodle, I think, is the one I do use. Um, mm-hmm. That's an alternative. Lots of these out there. And actually, Fantastical added this feature to their paid-for uh, subscription plan, which is another good plug for Fantastical, which is fantastic. Ah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. And given that it's a product you pay for, there is zero privacy concerns about letting Fantastical, who you literally trust with your calendar, to manage your bookings. Because <laughs> you're not sharing information with a new person, right? Fantastical already right. have your calendars because they're Fantastical. So of all the places to get this kind of functionality, that strikes me as a really good fit because you're not trusting anyone else. You're just getting some more functionality for the money you're paying them already. So I will like that. And then finally, on the one hand, I'm tempted to laugh. On the other hand, there's an important lesson here. So there is a Christian aid organization called Give, Send, Go that allows people to give money to good causes. And they have classified the Freedom Convoy in Canada as a good cause, where they they lose me a bit on that one. Uh, And they suffered a data breach, and it is now being used to dox people who supported the convoy. And while I don't support people who support the convoy, I also don't support doxing people and I don't support, you know, harassing people for having different opinions to me. So if you use this service to donate money, it has been breached. Whether you donated the money to the convoy or not, if they have one set of data, they have the data. So at the moment, the attackers are only going after the Freedom Convoy people. But someone who's not Give, Send, Go has Give, Send, Go data. Yeah, now they said they only gave it to... uh, uh, Sort of an activist-y leaking site. Well, but they gave it to uh, uh, reporters, to uh, journalists. But the definition of journalist could be a lot of different things, right? (laughs) That's open, yeah. 
And I think the interesting thing about this was that 50% of the people who donated to the Freedom Convoy in Canada were from the United States. Mo- it's just kind of an interesting fact. It is an interesting fact, uh, along with the fact that it's full of Trump flags. And last I checked, he wasn't running for Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. It just it just kind of makes you tilt your head and go, hmm. Oh. Yeah. Well, I've done that quite that a bit means. this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, notable news then. Microsoft is reevaluating the convenience the convenience risk trade-off in some of its own tools. So the first thing they have done is they have outright disabled a protocol called MSIX, which was a way of having installers install software directly across the internet without even downloading the installer to your computer. And because it was happening over Microsoft's own protocol, it was given far too much trust. And it was basically a way your company can easily install, make your apps easily installable by your clients. And any malicious person can basically do the same for their malware. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. So Microsoft have flat out disabled the protocol and they're looking into whether or not they can actually secure it. And if they can, they will re-enable the protocol. But not until. But not until. And the Naked Security article... So the ZDNet article gives you the facts, and it's very straightforward. The Naked Security article illustrates exactly how the attacks work with practical examples, because they were actually targeted. They have a bunch of honeypot email addresses, and one of their honeypots got snagged in this. And their opinions are quite opinionated and they basically think this whole protocol is a disastrously stupid idea and that it should never come back. But we shall see. And then the other big thing, which again, Naked Security got very excited about, their headline starts with, at last, exclamation point. But the actual important news is that macros in Office documents downloaded from the internet are now blocked by default. And I don't just mean they give you a warning you can click by. I mean, they are blocked. Oh. So when you download something with a web browser, there's a little piece of metadata gets added to the file, which is why you have this on the Mac and on Windows, right? So if you go into view properties on this file you download from the internet, it will show you the URL it came from. And on Windows, that is done through something called the mark of the web. And any file with the mark of the web... Office will refuse to run macros. And the only way to get it to run the macros is to do a file, save as, and make it a whole new file that does not have the mark of the web. So if you want, if you really, really want to run the macro, there is a mechanism, but Microsoft have literally made it as difficult as possible so that you absolutely positively are not going to be easily socially engineered into doing this. They have just put up every hurdle to slow you down so that this really should finally nip in the bud this very popular mechanism for malware. So I thought it was very good. Yeah. Are are they still useful? They are. I mean, macros, macros are a very useful thing, no? Are they? Are they? Within Excel, you have formulas, and this doesn't affect formulas. And within Word, I think we just have better cloudy tools for doing automation. Well, the last time I used a macro in Excel, it was to do to perform a series of functions within uh, within the program, so I didn't have to keep typing it again and again and again. But was that using Visual Basic macros, or was that using Excel's mm. built-in? Probably not, because I I never learned Visual Basic. 
Yeah, so VB this macros. Is probably pre-visual basic, actually. Uh-huh. Well, so it's VB macros, or when they say macros, they actually mean VB macros, so not Excel formulas. Uh, and obviously, Word doesn't have Excel formulas. So for Word, this is a bigger deal than for Excel. Because in Excel, you can do a stupendous amount without macros. And macros don't exist on the Mac and never have. Because there's no VB, there's no VB script. No, we had macros. I didn't, no, you had, I was doing this back when you could do macros on a Mac. Absolutely. Well, they weren't. They were some sort of very, very old tech then. This must be a very long time ago because the modern yeah. the modern macro doesn't exist on the Mac because Apple Microsoft didn't port VB, Visual Basic for applications to the Mac. VBA. That's the acronym. Anyway, this this is this is a really common thing malware does, and now it can't. Tick. Good. Yeah. Um so I thought this was worthy of a security bits story, even though you may argue with me that it has nothing to do with security. So the story is that Google have released a new version of their Chrome OS, which are calling Chrome OS Flex, and it's designed to be installable by humans on a stupendous array of hardware. Old laptops, old tablets, old Macs. And the reason I think this is a security story is because this is a mechanism for using old Apple hardware in a secure way that is still getting software updates. Now, it's not a private way because you're jumping into Google land, but if you're already in Google land, if you're already a Gmail user, well, you have literally nothing to lose here. And what you gain is an OS that's getting security patches. You know what bothers me about this story? They bought a company called Neverware that did this already. So this isn't like this, everybody's been talking about this like they've made fire but I, if you look up Neverware on podfeet.com, you can find where I did it to like a 2005 MacBook and gave it to my next door neighbor for his daughter to use to uh, basically have Linux on, a, on an old piece of hardware. Well, as I understand it, they've taken that technology and tweaked it a bit to make it more robust and a bit more user-friendly. But yeah, the, the core of it is indeed... Yeah. And in fact... That's cool that they're doing it's it. Exactly. So... The fact that it's human-friendly, right? Because if you want to nerd out, you can stick Linux on anything. Stick Linux on your printer. Like, you can, you can run mm-hmm. Linux on anything. But the level of nerditude goes up, depending, you know, as, as the hardware gets more weird. Whereas yeah, this is well, just this, pointy-click. Th- this Neverware stuff actually uh, replaced everything. I mean, it was, this can no longer be a Mac after you do this. You could do it. You could boot from a thumb drive and run this other OS, but this was like this. This Mac is no longer a Mac. Never will be a Mac again. This is whatever. Yeah, it's about a firmware level or whatever. This this is now. You have transformed this thing into a Chromebook. Yeah, I wonder whether it's reversible. To be honest, I didn't dig into it. I I was just sort of caught by the fact that there is now a way for non-nerds to take old hardware and keep it more secure. And that's that's the key, right? Non-nerds. That is the key. Because nerds have had a way for ages. But this this is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we have two American-specific stories that I think are worthy of mention. So Senator Wyden has released an open letter to the CIA. And the reason you're hearing a question mark in my voice is because... It is an open letter, but the CIA have forced redactions. So an open letter full of black bars. Is that really an open letter? <laughs> but anyway, what we do know that is not redacted is that there is a surveillance program that is collecting the data of American citizens. It is probably illegal and it was not reported to the Senate Oversight Committee in the proper channels. However, the senators have become aware of it and they would like the CIA to stop. 
and to explain mm. exactly what the heck they were collecting so that uh, people know what happened. Mm. So there is a lot of missing detail, uh, but clearly Senator Wyden has his, the bit between his teeth and he's chasing something down here. So I would say stay tuned. There is another shoe dangling about to drop here. And then much closer to where you're sitting, there is a new bill introduced in the California State Legislature, which, if it passes, will implement some serious limitations on what social media companies are allowed to track on children. So this is very much inspired by a recent UK law, um, and it would limit the amount of data that can be collected on kids. So Good. It, very good. So the question is, okay, it's a good bill. Will it become any law? And if it does become a law, will it still be a good law when it arrives that far? But that is one to watch out for. And at the moment, this looks like a very positive development. So stay tuned. And what I, I had one more story hidden somewhere. Oh, yes. So the last thing I have is one for the nerds only. Um, I've talked quite a few times about the fact that it is now considered silly to view the world as being, you know, outside the firewall and inside the firewall. This notion that we have this moat around us and then everything inside the moat is good and everything outside the moat is bad. And instead, we've moved to a model that's called zero trust. And I give you a hand-waving definition of how this all hangs together. But if you actually want a detailed understanding of it, there's a long, detailed, but very good article um, linked in the show notes called Zero Trust Architecture, Rethinking Cybersecurity for Changing Environments. It is from an education point of view, but a university and a large corporation are awfully similar things. So the concepts absolutely are the same, whether you're in enterprise or education. So That has been an interesting thing that I did not know that much about, and I'm finding it more and more interesting thinking about how you would do that. Well, then you that, really should read this, especially with your old hat on from when you, you, know, when you were still in working life, mm -hmm. because this will tell you what's changed in the industry since you were neck deep in these kind of things. <laughs> so, as I say, it's not a yay, joy, fun read. It's quite, there's a lot to digest, but it's good, um, and it explains it all very well. So if you're curious about what I've been blathering on about, that's a good way to look at it. Um, and then, uh, oh, actually, I do have more. I have a just because it's cool. So CISA couldn't make an interesting or exciting web page if you paid them to. But their very dry websites are often worth digging into. And they have published a gigantic list of free cybersecurity tools and services. And they've broken them into categories for what they help with. At first glance, it's just a wall of text, but it's actually extremely useful text. So it's worth a look to see if there's some cool free stuff that you could be availing of that you're not. So that's uh, oh, a little, cool, cool. little public service from the Center for Information Security and something or other. <laughs> Infrastructure <laughs> I, Security Agency, something like that. Anyway, CISA, US government agency, quite good, actually. Um, so, yeah. I think you also skipped over your interesting insight there. Did I? Yes, I Brené. did. Yes, I did. How could I not give René Ritchie? Either that or I went into a coma. <laughs> no, 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 you're dead right. I completely forgot. So 
Rene Ritchie, ha- he does really fun video slash podcast slash articles. And his most recent one that caught my eye is called How Apple Destroys Face ID, which sounds like a bad thing. But what he means is how Apple utterly replaces Face ID and Touch ID with something which is both more secure and more convenient. And it's not, to be honest, it's not just an Apple thing. It's just that in Rene Ritchie, that's Rene Ritchie's world. So, of course, he's talking about how it will be for us iPhone users. But it's a fascinating discussion of where I am almost certain the future is indeed heading, where you have lots and lots and lots of signals of who you are, none of which individually are even vaguely secure enough to be certain you are who you're supposed to be. But when taken together, they can give a security confidence score. And as long as that confidence score stays above a threshold, the device can just be unlocked. Oh, interesting. So, one so of the, this is this is a concept. He didn't come up with this concept. He did not come up did with did the he? concept. So the concept is called threshold okay. security, where you take okay. lots and lots of signals and you make sure you reach a threshold. And if you're at the threshold, open. If you're not at the threshold, challenge. So say, actually, no, I do okay. want you to use your finger or I do need you to look at the camera. But most of the time, when I'm pretty sure it's you, I can just let you use your phone. And so Rene tells that story from the iPhone point of view, right? So from the point of view of those of us who are used to Touch ID and Face ID, this is where things are headed, this concept of threshold. That's interesting because one of the basic tenets of security is that in order to secure information, so it's sort of the flip side of this, in order to secure classified information, for example, there's little pieces that aren't classified. Mm. But if you added up all of these little pieces together, you can figure out what the answer is. And and so they they would, uh, the classified programs that I worked on would actually say, well, no, I can't answer that question. And you're like, well, that's not classified. He says, yeah, but if I answer this and I answer this and I answer this, you would be able to figure out what I'm doing. Yes. And this is sort of the flip side of that, right? Yeah, it's the same principle, but working for you instead of against yeah. you. So it's, yeah. it's a very good approach. And um, I really enjoyed listening to you because it's a well, it's a good description of a, of a concept I was already familiar with. And I really hope he's right. And I think he is. <laughs> um, so it's two good things there. So that's, uh, th- that is actually all I have. Uh, but uh, I didn't have a palate cleanser. So I put the word out saying, Alison, help. So uh, over to you. One of uh, it's not a secret that I'm a big fan of TikTok, and one of the things I've started doing, other than annoying all my friends and family, sending them TikToks all the time, I'm, I'm like that that uh, person for, that used to forward the jokes in AOL. I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I can't help myself; these things are so good in so many different ways. I finally I started a uh, an, an Apple Note, and it's uh, gosh, it's getting long. It's about ten pages long of like the coolest, most interesting things I've seen. And a lot of times it's like, boy, this was just really funny. Or, But it might be, hey, look what I, I learned about. Like one of the videos I've got here is uh, a woman who had her the bottom half of her leg sewed on at her knee backwards. So she had, she had bone cancer where a big section of her leg had to be removed, but it turned out this was still a useful limb to have was a backwards foot. And it's fascinating to watch her and hear her give the explanation. But that's not... That's not our our palate cleanser uh, for today. The one I thought you would enjoy was a guy, I'm not sure he's actually a physicist. He's a scientist of some sort or a lover of science, if nothing else. But it's him losing his mind because someone published a paper saying that they had successfully uh, done quantum entanglement with a a tardigrade. (laughs) And 
his his enthusiasm, both Bart and I agree, this guy's really cute. He's just adorable. He is so excited. He's dancing around the room. He throws himself back on the couch <laughs> as he's describing physics. And it was, it, it, the, the physics is actually questionable as it turns out, but it was still really, really fun. Yeah, what did you think of it? Well, I enjoy seeing people get passionate about science and it's cool science, you know, even if there's you know, even if shock horror, the headlines don't really do it just, you know, aren't really accurate. But hey, it's it's good to hear it explained. It's fun to watch someone who really enjoys it explain it. Yeah, it's just a, it's a fun video. This is why you like TikTok, because it's full of, you know, positive, happy things. Yeah, if you if you tailor your feed correctly by liking the things you actually like. Like, don't push like on politics. Don't right. push like on anger or, you know, every once in a while I'm listening to one going, oh, yeah, wait, oh, no, 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 move on, move you on, don't, don't like watch this. it. <laughs> yeah, well, and if you stay on it too long, that sends a signal too. So you got to make sure as soon as it starts to get you angry or anxious, just flip on by and go to the funny ones. And you can, you can just have joy in your life. So do as I do, not as I say. If you want it to be a happy place, be, be happy and it will follow. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent. <laughs> Cool. Okay, well, I think that's all I got. So um, remember, folks, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know that you can email me anytime you want? You can email me at allisonatpodfeet.com and I'll probably respond. I usually do. If you have a question or a suggestion or you want to send in a review, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you need to go join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you're super nerdy, join that Programming by Stealth channel because it's awesome. Anyway, you can talk to me, all of the other no- lovely Nocilla castaways, my hero, William Reveal. And uh, it's, it's just great fun. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to help pay those new server bills? You can support the show by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Or you can give me a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Barry did in real life here, in a very odd twist of things, anyway, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.